0: Good morning. Thank you. That was very enthusiastic, particularly from Billings and Andrew. Very enthusiastic. That was really lovely. I'll say to the guys in the week, just following on from what Brendan was saying. You know, I heard an illustration a couple of weeks ago, another pastor actually in Carlingford that I was talking to. And he was just saying, you know, when you go on holiday, when you go on vacation, you check into a hotel, and if you're only going for a week or two, you don't really bother to even unpack your bag, do you? You just live out of a suitcase for that time. But if, if somebody said to you, well, you're going to be in this hotel room for the next year, you'd probably go ahead and unpack your bag, because we may as well settle in. And I think that's what this service needs to do. We could be here for some time. And so I'm aware that for some of you, you thinking, man, I don't really have many friends in this service. My friends are in a different service. Unpack your bags, my friends. This in the right sense is it. And it's important It's important that we start to realize this is the way it could well be for some time. And so let's unpack and let's do some life together. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. And if you're making notes, I've called this message, A City on a Hill. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say as follows. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What an incredible promise that is as we come to God's Word, don't you think? This book is God breathed. It wasn't written by Enid Blyton or J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. It was written by God himself. This Word is His Word. It's alive and active. It's sharper than the double-edged sword. In one sense, we read the Bible, but in a completely other sense, it reads you. And when we gather around God's Word, what begins to happen is we find ourselves complete then and equipped for every good work. And this morning here in chapter 3, verse 11, we come into a most important topic. And so I'm going to read just one verse to you today, chapter 3, verse 11. And then in some ways, we're going to do a biblical theology on this verse and go wider in the Bible and then back to this verse so that hopefully it'll all make sense. This is the Word of God, Colossians 3, verse 11. For here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all, and in all. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word, and I do thank you that it is alive. So, Lord, through your spirit, would your word do its work this morning? Would you open our eyes? Would we be informed and encouraged and healed and aided? Lord, that we may emerge from your word this morning, complete and equipped for this good work that you call us to. Help us all by your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, whether we like it or not, racism is such a present reality in our world, isn't it? We may not appreciate that. I'm sure we don't want that. But the harsh reality is racism is a very present reality in our world. No matter what country you live in in the world, you will find the distinct smell of racism tarnishing. Your surroundings and the culture and nation that you are in. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading Kent Hughes' commentary on Colossians, actually for a previous message. but in that commentary he tells a story of John Perkins. John Perkins was a black man in the United States. He would actually go on after this event to become a pastor in the United States and actually a civil activist as well against racism. That story began when he was horribly mistreated in a Mississippi jail. This is his story. John Perkins was repeatedly kicked and stomped on as he lay in a fetal position for protection. The beating went on and on as he writhed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took turns using their feet and blackjacks. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to Perkins' head, and pulled the trigger. Then another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. As the night wore on, it got even worse, as during a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down Perkins' throat. It was barbarous torture, and a great and substantive reason for hate. What a horrible, horrible reality that was. It was indeed a barbarous torture and a great and substantive reason to hate. What occurred to Mr. Perkins on that evening simply occurred because of the color of his skin in a state that was predominantly white. And I would love to report to you this morning that that is an isolated incident of racism that since then there has been nothing occurring in our world that is anything like that. But sadly, I cannot. Racism happens all the time. Just a few months ago then on the 25th of May in Minneapolis, United States of America, we saw the tragic death of George Floyd. Many of you will have seen that on your news and on your television sets this grown black man being pushed on the ground he's been arrested and then the officer proceeds to put a knee in the back of his neck and is literally suffocating him and so Mr. Floyd is crying out for his mum, and he's crying out I can't breathe and that officer just proceeds to crush his neck and he kills him he suffocates him primarily because of the colour of his skin. He was dealt with more harshly than people should be because of racism. Sadly, that is two illustrations of thousands and thousands and thousands of illustrations I could reveal to you this morning to point a finger to racism. Whether we like it or not, racism is such a present reality in our world, is it not? And it is not easy then, at least for me, to put words to something of such magnitude. This topic is so emotive by very nature. And this topic is hard to get our hands around because it is so prevalent in our world. It is so pervasive in our society. And yet, constrained by Scripture this morning, In particular, this verse right here in chapter 3, verse 11, and confined, I believe, by the Lord who hates racism and never designed it, that this would be the way it would be. And confined in all honesty by love for you, aware that some of you have been on the end of this type of racism and aware that many of us need to be informed biblically on this challenge. This morning I want to talk to us about the issue of racism. And it's my hope as we go through this text and go through this biblical theology on this topic that we would be informed, that we would be healed, and that we may be helped. There is so much cultural discussion out there on this topic. And that's not a bad thing. But it is so important that we let God's Word ultimately inform us. Because as we gather around this Word, we will be complete and equipped for every good work, even dealing with racism. Three points then this morning, and here's the first. Number one, the reason for racism. See, as we gather around God's Word and we grasp and understand God's the, the reason for racism in our world, it's important to understand, first and foremost, this was not the way it was meant to be. This is not the way God designed it to be, not in any sense, any shape, nor form. In Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, we see the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, meeting and engaging with one another, literally talking to one another, about their desire to make the climax and crown of all creation, they decide to make man. And these are the verses: it says then God said, meaning the Trinity, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock." And over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us in that very moment, Adam and Eve standing side by side as the seeds to all humanity. And it's very clear he made us all equal in value and worth and dignity. No matter what race we would go to be a part of, no matter where nation we'd be born, no matter the color of our skin, he designed it deliberately in his righteous glory that as we reflect the rich tapestry of the Trinity, he would make us all equal in value and worth and dignity before him. you correctly understood, those verses leave no room for sexism, do they? No room. Because both man and woman alike are equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. Because each one is needed to reflect God as an image bearer of God himself. It's not about girl power. It's not about man power. It's just about reflecting together the glory of God. Correctly understood, these verses likewise leave no room for classism. The idea that I am better than you because my socioeconomic status is higher than yours. These verses leave no room for that because it's not about how much money you have in your bank account, it's about that you are an image bearer of God Himself. And correctly understood, these verses leave no room for racism. This idea, because of my ethnicity, or because of my nationality, or because of my race, I am better or worse than you. No! This verse screams to us that there is equality in value and worth and dignity before the Lord, because while there is great diversity in our world, all needed to paint a glorious picture of the glory of God, there is nonetheless equality and value and worth and dignity because each and every person each and every man and woman equally an image bearer of God himself Thomas Schreiner writes about it this way I agree with him he says the importance of human beings being created in the image of God can scarcely be exaggerated and how true that is can scarcely be exaggerated And when it comes then to understanding that in race, J. Daniel Hayes in his wonderful, highly recommended book From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, this is what he says. He says, The racially generic Adam then represents all of humankind. All people of all races are thus created in the image of God. Blacks, whites, And people of all other races are all created in the image of God. Therefore, the quality that distinguishes humankind from the animals and from the rest of creation is shared by all the races of the earth. And so it is, my friends. God did not design it this way where there would be lines between ethnicities, where there would be lines between race, where there would be lines between nations in a way that we are better than you and we are better than you. No! He designed it that we would see across all nationalities, all races, an equality and value and worth and dignity because all are made in the image of God. And yet, sadly, the wheels have come off that somewhere, haven't they? Sadly, not. that's not the way our world speaks. Somehow, something has gone dramatically wrong. And what you discover in sadness is where it went wrong is Genesis chapter 3. Two chapters later. After just two chapters of the Bible, it already starts to go sideways. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what we read. It says, On the Lord God, the one who at this point was dwelling in perfect harmony with his children, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam, it's not complicated. Enjoy the garden. Live it up. Subdue the earth. You have dominion over all the animals of the earth, all the land of the earth. Adam, go and enjoy it. It's a glorious thing. Just one thing you can't do. Just one thing. Do not do that. Because when you do that, You will surely die, not only physically, but spiritually. Things will go wrong. Genesis chapter 3, what happens? One thing he can't do. What's the one thing he wants to do? Where's that tree? The serpent deceives him. His wife actually encourages him. And he eats of the forbidden fruit. And as he does, sin comes into the earth. And in that moment, my friend, the wheels completely turn off. Because in that moment, two great things happen. Number one, in that moment, hostility and enmity between God and man begins. There is a wall of hostility between us and God. It's illustrated by the fact that in that moment, God takes Adam and Eve and he drives them from the garden. He puts them out of his presence. He can no longer just dwell with them in unity and joy and grace. There is a wall of hostility between them now because they are objects of his righteous wrath due to the consequence of their sin. And the rest of the Bible, if you pay attention, is all about how we get back in the garden. How we get back into a relationship with God. For first and foremost, then, the consequence of our sin is the erecting of a wall of hostility between man and God. But that's not all that happened. What also happened in that moment is a wall of hostility went up between man and mankind. There was not only hostility between us and God, there was hostility between man and man and man and woman and woman and woman. In a moment, through the illustration of sin and through the presence of sin, a wall of hostility came up between different kinds of people. Very quickly, then, sins like anger and wrath and malice begin to be seen. You know where the first murder is in the entire universe? Genesis chapter 4. Four chapters into the Bible. And Cain brutally kills Abel. Why? Why? Because he's irritated with him. He's jealous of him. So there's wrath and anger. There's a wall of hostility between them. And so there's wrath. And there's murder. And then there's sins like slander and gossip and lying begin to take place. And then very quickly in the opening chapters of the Bible, we see sins like sexism and classism and racism already begin to rear their heads. Romans 3.23 then, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Ever since Adam gave forth that original sin, in truth and in sadness, we have been following suit ever since. Listen, friends, none of us are above this. There are the seeds of sexism and classism and racism and lying and anger and malice. There are seeds of all those things in all our pockets. We've been following suit ever since. And my friends, this is important because when it comes to understanding then where racism has come from, our culture says things that I don't believe are true. Because in all reality, my friends, The original sin is not the transatlantic slave trade of Africans, nor the Nazi German Holocaust of the Jews, nor the stolen generation of the original owners of this land. Horrific and wrong and abhorrent, though all those things are, they are not the original sin. The original sin is Genesis chapter 3. That's where it went sideways. And sadly, we have been following suit ever since. Because of sin, there is hostility between man and God. And because of sin, there is hostility between men and mankind. And quite frankly, when you study this biblically, I think God would have been totally righteous and just to just say, you know what? I told you not to do it. So you sort it out. You battle it out. But in grace, he doesn't. In grace, he gives us a remedy and oh, what a happy discovery this is. And that's point two, God's remedy for racism. Make no mistake, in the Bible, we do discover a remedy for racism. See, in all reality, my friends, our one-time state before God could not have been more serious. I think it's a state and a reality that sometimes we don't give enough thought to. But it's a state and reality that had your name attached to this state. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Listen, insert your name into these lines. As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My friends, when you read that, do not disclude your name in that statement. Your name is, is in that statement. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You freely followed the prince of the power of the air. You all lived at one time in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of mind. Once upon a time in your life, quite literally, you just did whatever you wanted to do. You didn't bow the knee to God. You bowed the knee to yourself, your own desires. Your own wants, And were by nature an object of God's wrath. Where our sinfulness and God's holiness collide, there will inevitably be an explosion of wrath. And that was pointed at you. And God could have left us there. He's told us how we got there. And he could have left us there. But in grace and mercy, the most incredible thing took place. In the opening two words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we read, But God. I mean, what a happy discovery those verses are, don't you think? You are dead in your transgressions and sins, far from the Lord, uninterested in the Lord, carrying out the work of your passions, an object of his wrath. But God was coming after us. We go on to read in that verse, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Isn't that not a happy discovery? God so graciously intervened in your life You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were far from the Lord, an object of his wrath. But God came after you in the greatest rescue mission ever told, seen in the personal work of his son. And oh my, as you go on then to study Ephesians chapter 2, what you discover then is in his grace and mercy through the death of his son, he brings down then the walls of hostility that are in our lives. Both of them. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we read of how he has brought down the wall of hostility between us and God. Look at this together. But now, it's different for you now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? In the natural, there is a wall of hostility between you and God, and in of yourself, you can't get back over it. But God, in his grace, sent forth his son, and in a moment through his death, he breaks down that wall. Boom! It comes tumbling down. As you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are then forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God, he even adopted it into his very family. It's staggering grace. But the wall of hostility between you and God has now been gone. It has been smashed and removed. But that's not the only wall that came down. Because what you discover is the wall between you and others has also been torn down. Chapter 2, verse 14 in Ephesians. He says, for he himself is our peace. Now he's looking out at the church and saying, Hey, listen. This hostility between you and God has been dealt with, but he is, he's our peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Isn't that amazing? In the natural there will be divisions between people everywhere, divisions on race, divisions on culture, divisions on ethnicity. But not in the kingdom of God there is not. In the kingdom of God, the wall of hostility has been torn down, torn down between you and God, and torn down between you and others. Now we are all one in Christ, one body. You see, the primary remedy then for racism, first and foremost, my friends, it is Christ. He is the remedy. He's the one who alone in a moment can take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He's the one who in a moment can tear down these walls of hostility on race and culture and ethnicity and say, I'm joining you now. It's different now. There is great diversity, but within that diversity there is unity and the splendor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is different. The ultimate remedy to racism is our Saviour and King. He's not only supreme in personhood. He's not only supreme in creation. He's not only supreme in the church. He is supreme in God's remedy for racism. He is the ultimate answer. And incredibly then, in a secondary sense, the secondary remedy for racism is Christ's church it's this it's this that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 21 it's profound he says so then you are no longer strangers and aliens that's what it used to be like when there were wars of hostility but not anymore Now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What Paul wants them to see is, listen, it's different for you now. You used to be in an aliens and strangers to one another. There were walls of hostility between you, walls of culture and race and colour of your skin. There were all sorts of walls, but not anymore. more. Now in Christ you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what God is doing then, by his grace and for his glory, he is taking you one stone at a time, one brick at a time, from different languages and nations and colors. And he's building you together into a temple for him. Indeed, he's building you together into a city on a hill. And a city on a hill that will indeed be a light to the nations. God's remedy for racism primarily is his son. But in a secondary way, it's the church. It's the church where people should see the transforming effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the church where people should see. So this is what it was meant to be like. One race, one family standing side by side, enjoying one another's diversity, but gathering together in unity, equal in value and worth and dignity as image bearers of God himself. And that is why Paul writes to the Colossians and says as he does in verse 11. Make more sense now. See what he says, here then, talking to this local church specifically, here then there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. It would appear that these false teachers are teaching in this church. Listen, there's differences between you. The Jews are better than the Greeks. The circumcised are better than the uncircumcised. The free are definitely better than slaves. Listen, you need to understand that. It's part of life. And what Paul is doing is writing to them and saying, Don't you dare believe that for a moment. Jesus Christ has paid the price. The wall of hostility between you and God has been torn down. And the wall of hostility between you and you and you and you and you and you you has been torn down. Don't go rebuilding that thing. Because you are a city on a hill, a light to the world. The nations will look on in the context of a local church and go, Oh my goodness, what's up with that? And you will have the privilege of telling them that is the power of the gospel, and this is the way it was always meant to be. So, here then, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or scythian, slave or free, because Christ is all and in all. He has changed our lives, and so in this church we take down the dividing walls and we stand together as one. Isn't it wonderful? God has a remedy for racism. First and foremostly, it is His Son. It's Jesus Christ who can change lives in a moment. And secondarily, it's actually His church, His body, His bride. Indeed, a city on a hill that is called by Him to be a light to the world. So point three, just to close, our response to racism. How should we respond? Understanding, I trust then, I hope, a biblical theology then on racism and understanding that actually we are part of the remedy that as the world looks on, they should see something differently. How then do we respond? And I want to finish with four things, four quick things that I want you to grasp and take to heart by way of good and reasonable response in this. Number one, I want to encourage you, church, to do all you can to proclaim Christ. Listen, all you can. Why? Because He's the remedy. He's the one who in a moment can change hearts. He's the one who in a moment can break down dividing walls. He's the one who in a moment can take out a heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh, to take out a heart of racism and sexism and classism and instead replace it with love and brotherhood and joy and love as you stand together as one. Only Jesus Christ can do that. You know, just this week then I was reading an article by Prince Harry and he was talking about the issue of global racism and I love the fact that he speaks into that. But his remedy was in effect we just need to get in a big room and we need to talk more about it and as we talk more about it, I'm sure it'll go away. I wish it was that simple. But given the reality of indwelling sin, given the reality of initial sin, I don't think just talking about it will affect it. Why? Because we're all sinful before the Lord and there are walls of hostility between us whether we like it or not. So what's the remedy? Jesus! Jesus! He is the remedy. He is the one who can change lives. No wonder then Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone, even the most racist person you've ever met, Jesus Christ can change his heart in a moment, the walls of hostility can come down, and his life or her life can be changed forever. Christ is the ultimate remedy to racism. So number one, do all you can to proclaim Christ. If you are passionate about seeing racism come to an end, which I trust you are, here's what you need to do more than anything else. Proclaim Christ with everybody who will listen. Because he's the one who can change life. Number two, do all you can to display Christ. See, as we've already seen by now, the local church is God's city on a hill, a light to the world. It's as we operate as a local church without lines of race and ethnicity and cultures and we gather as one, standing side by side in the gospel, that the world gets to see something really different. So we need to do all we can to display Christ. You know, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible is one that I mentioned last week, is John 13. And a moment where Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as creator of the earth, wraps a towel around his waist and gets on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. It's staggering. And at the end of that chapter, this is what he says to his disciples in verse 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I now give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, listen, if you have love for one another. My friends, it is so powerful then, when you and I have the joy of being in a church that is so multi-ethnic, multiracial. To be able to stand together as one and truly love one another and serve one another and listen to one another and weep with one another and rejoice with one another and do life with one another. Why? Because as we do that in a way that maybe even takes for granted sometimes, the world will be looking on and going, what is up with that? And we will have the privilege to explain to them, to be honest, it's because here we're a family. One body, one race. Equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord in a way it was always designed to be. In fact, even now, God is saving people from every tribe and language and nation. He's building a choir with them that will all sing as one on that day. Worthy is the Lamb. And so that's why we are the way we are as a local church because we want to be like that even now. Brothers and sisters, do all you can then to display Christ. Number three. Number three. Do all you can to eagerly maintain the unity. All you can. You know, it doesn't take long to examine Paul's books and whether you are reading Romans or Ephesians or Philippians or wherever you are, one of the things you quickly discover is that Paul champions unity. Unity is clearly a very, very big issue for Paul and maintaining the unity is crucial to Paul. So whatever book you find yourself in, usually you find him saying, listen, be eager to maintain the unity, maintain the unity, maintain the unity. The word maintain is because God has already given you unity. In Christ, the walls of hostility have calmed down. So be eager to maintain that. Don't go erecting walls in your churches. No, let them be down. And the reason for that is simple. Where there is unity... In the local church, there will be great joy and encouragement and blessing. Indeed, they as a local church will be a light unto the world. But where there is disunity, there will be great destruction and great distraction and great difficulty. Indeed, there will be great darkness. Because the world will look in and all they will see is you are exactly the same as the rest of us. No distinction. And so Paul is eager that we be quick then to champion unity and eagerly maintain it. And what I have discovered, my friends, after 20 years of pastoral ministry, I wish I'd gathered it sooner. But what I've discovered is to eagerly maintain the unity takes the crown of love that he's talking about in verse 14. Verse 14 of Colossians, he says, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the crown of the wardrobe. It's the crown of the royal wardrobe that he's given us to wear on our heads as we seek to do life with one another. And if we are going to eagerly maintain the unity together, what that means more than anything is profound leaning in love towards one another. With that in mind, a few months ago, I reached out to some of our people of colour in our church over the death of George Floyd. See, to start off with, I hadn't grasped that any would be be personally and specifically affected by his death. I was naive. And in kindness, some folk reached out to me to explain to me that actually some individuals had been very affected by that. I was unaware. wasn't helped by COVID-19 where you can't look anybody in the eyes. so you're just getting on. And so I pulled together a Zoom call and a number of folk were very kind and very gracious to give me their time. And what I discovered during that evening is simply this, that you just don't know what you don't know. As a white guy I have never experienced racism in my life. And I had no clue. And so, as I spent the evening just asking questions, I was one doing much talking, I'm just trying to listen and understand. And talk to some of our folk about how the situation with George Floyd had landed on them. and, And what is it like to be black in Australia? What is it like to train children here as a black person? Was it like to grow up here and be here as a person of colour? And for me, to be honest, the night was humbling. It was grieving. I grew in respect for the group that I was listening to and I was so pleased that they felt they could share with me about their stories. And yet I had no realisation. I was hearing stories of people who We're seeking to do their job and serve people in the very job that they've been given, they get paid for. And as they're seeking to offer that service, they just stop. Listen, um, I don't want you. I want somebody who's white. Stories of men and women going into meetings, high-level meetings, and finding that as they walked in the room, other people would see them and they'd just turn their back on them and carry on talking and... Maybe if that happens once or twice, you would think, well, maybe it's just a coincidence. But when it begins to happen again and again and again, while you're on a bus or a train, and you notice this whole carriage is packed. I mean, there is, this whole thing is heaving. Every seat is taken apart from the one next to me. And again, maybe it happens once or twice. You think, well, maybe there's something wrong with the seat, but... Eventually, you realize, maybe it's because of my color. And I was grieved by what many of our brothers and sisters actually experience, even right here in Australia. After that, I was speaking to some of our Asian folks, but our Chinese folk, just particularly following up with them about how it's been for them in light of COVID-19. Allegedly the Chinese virus. And it was so sad again to hear about how they'd been abused for this, how they'd been told to go home. Some people even seriously on the end of abuse, concerned of physical harm as people are running towards them, shouting at them to get out. My friends, you simply don't know, I believe, what you don't know. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do in a desire to eagerly maintain the unity right here in Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. I want to encourage you then to work hard then in love to find out about the worlds of those who are different from you. Take the time to understand what it's like to be in their shoes. Don't just assume that you know I assumed I was wrong. In love, being eager to maintain the unity, I believe, means leaning in and asking questions. And my friends, if you're here today and you are asked a question, please don't not tell them the truth. Because they don't know what they don't know. And it's as we all share about the realities that I think we'll grow in understanding for one another, we'll grow in respect for one another, and quite frankly, we'll grow in unity as we understand one another's world so much more. And then number four, just finally to close, I want to encourage you: where you where you have been on the receiving end of racism, I want to encourage you to do all you can to forgive those that have so clearly sinned against you. Now listen, I'm aware that as I say that it could appear cheap. Because I'm a white guy from the United Kingdom who's never experienced racism. But I want to finish then by taking you back to the story of John Perkins. Because his story is he was beaten to a pulp in that Mississippi jail. doesn't end there. And these are his words, his own words of what happened to him later that night. He says, as I lay in my bed that night, the Spirit of God worked on me and an image formed in my mind of the cross with Jesus Christ upon it. And it began to blot out everything else in my mind. For this Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared. Because he too had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me. He had been through an unjust trial and then faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he had been nailed to rough wooden planks and then crucified. Crucified like a common criminal. For at that crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great. And yet, as he looked out at the mob that had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. And therefore prayed for them. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. For his enemies hated but Jesus forgave. And I simply could not get away from that reality. Then he says this, And on that bed, that night, full of bruises and stitches, God made that reality true in me as well. And I felt strong again. Isn't that beautiful? In that moment, aware of how much he had been forgiven by God himself, And how much the example of the one he gave his life to was one of being falsely accused and beaten, even crucified. And yet, Tone was one of forgiveness to them. He decided that he wanted to follow Jesus and be like him and forgive them. And in that moment, he felt strong again. My friends, unforgiveness will just create bitterness and anger and wrath and malice in your heart. It will eat you up from the inside out. But true forgiveness brings love and peace. And it makes us strong again. So if you have been on the end of racism, do all you can to forgive those who have so clearly sinned against you. My friends, whether we like it or not, racism is such a present reality in our world. And yet God has given us a remedy. Primarily, his name is Jesus. He's the one who can bring down the walls of hostility in our lives and in our world. And secondarily, it's Christ's church. It's what we have right here. A city on a hill that should never be hidden and a light to the world. So may we be that church. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for speaking into this issue in your word. Lord, I thank you that you have indeed brought down the walls of hostility between ourselves and you and ourselves and one another. So Lord, would we work hard as a local church in love and unity? walk side by side in the gospel. Brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters of the great high God. May we be the city on a hill that you've always called us to be. And in that may we be a light to the world. In Jesus name.